Well, good evening. Thank you, Dan, for leading us so far in our worship this evening. It would be useful if you could keep your Bibles open at the passage that Dan read for us earlier. We're going to refer to it from time to time over the next few minutes as we reflect on the passage that we've read. You'll find that passage again on page 1168 of the Bible in the pew. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. We pray, Father, as we reflect on the passage that we've read together this evening, that you would speak to us, to us through it. May your Holy Spirit, Father, descend on our gathering this evening, and may you speak in power. Amen. I wonder, do you pay much attention to the last six words that are read every morning and evening here at Kirkpatrick after the Bible reading? What do we say? Well, if anybody's ever had the opportunity to read up here, you'll, you'll find the words written out in a little card just to, to help you remind you. Each morning and evening we say, this is the word of God. A definite statement of absolute truth. We don't say this is the word of, of a God or one of the words of God, but we say it is the word of God. It reminds us of our belief as a church that this book that we've read from this evening is an absolute standard, that this book is God's word to us. And I'm sure you'll be very aware that within our, our Western society today, we're greatly dominated by the postmodern movement. And within that movement, absolute truth is dead. That's truth in any objective or absolute sense, truth that's independent of the mind of the knower no longer exists, they say. At best, truth is relative. It's all a matter of, of interpretation, and it all depends on, on your perspective. Let me illustrate that with a story of three tennis umpires discussing their different philosophies of how they would umpire. The first one says, the ball's in or the ball's out. And I call them the way it is. No explains the second one. That's arrogant. The ball's in or it's out. And I call it the way I see it. That's no better at all, says the third one. Why beat around the bush? Why not be realistic about what we do? The ball's in or the ball's out. And it's nothing until I call it. Now the first umpire, I call it the way it is. He represents the traditional view of truth. Objective, independent of the mind of the knower. And it's there to be discovered. The second one, I call it the way I see it. Well he speaks for relativism. Truth as each person sees it according to his or her perspective and interpretation. The third one, it's nothing until I call it. He expresses the postmodern position. Truth is not there to be discovered. It's for each one of us to create for ourselves. Now, in schools and universities today, much teaching is dominated by postmodern thought. For example, in English lessons, we're not taught to look for what the author intended, 
but rather, what is this poem or piece of prose saying to you? Truth is there for each of us to create. And yet in the Bible, we see a fundamentally different approach. For Christianity is a revealed truth. God says, this is who I am. I'm not here for interpretation or debate. I am who I am. He is an absolute truth. And how difficult it can be, particularly for those people who are schooled in a postmodern environment, but for all of us who live in such an environment today, to grapple with a biblical approach of an absolute God who is absolute truth. If we're to approach these matters in accordance with biblical truth, we can expect much criticism and derision. If we're going to bear effective witness to our faith, we need to be able to meet the cries of many in society today who will tell us that absolute truth is dead. Well, what is this absolute truth that Christianity seeks to proclaim? Well, we find it neatly summarized in the passage that Dan read for us earlier tonight. Let's start at the end. Let's look in chapter 2, and in particular at verse 15, where Paul sets out in summary form the absolute truth of God. Now, to understand what Paul is saying in these verses, we need to grasp the concept of justification. For those of you who did history at school, you'll remember that's the, the, the watch cry of the Reformation. And we need to discover in particular the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Verses 15 and 16. Paul says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is justified by observing the law. Sorry, not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times in those verses we've just read, Paul speaks of justification and no one who's properly understood Christianity has not understood this word. Well, what does it mean? Justification is the good news that sinful human beings may be accepted by God and have a living relationship with him, not because of their works, but simply through trusting in Jesus Christ. Tom Wright, who many of you may know, the Bishop of Durham, put it simply when he says that justification is simply to declare something in the right. So if we're justified, we are each of us declared to be in the right. Justification is really God looking down at us as human beings and declaring that we've no penalty to pay for our sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. And it's not merely that God looks at us and views us as, as neutral in his sight, but when God looks at us, he declares us to be perfectly right before him. Well, how is it possible for those of us who are in the wrong because of our sin to be declared by God to be in the right? It's a problem. We stand before God in his unimpeachable purity and holiness, and we're answerable to him. We're unquestionably in the wrong, how can he declare us to be in the right? Now, of course, lots of people give lots of different answers to that question. 
Many will say, well, you just need to be a, a decent person to, to do the right thing. Good works for those people are what it's all about. That's all that God demands. But that's a delusion. That's not God's way. Because no one has ever been justified by the things they've done or just by being a good person. For the simple reason that, that no one will ever be good enough for a God who demands perfection to satisfy his need for holiness. But the truth that Paul proclaims in this passage is that we're justified with God not through our works, but it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's look again at chapter 2, verse 16. You'll find there the key message of Christianity in a nutshell. If you're trusting in what Christ has done for you, you are justified. You are declared in the right, even though you're in the wrong. Now, some of you may find it hard to, to, to wonder, well, what is it that, that this means? What is it that Christ has done for me? Well, let, me let me express it simply. God regards Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, what he did for us on the cross, as belonging to us. He imputes it to us. When God looks at us, he does so through a filter. Instead of seeing our sinful state, he sees Jesus and God's need for justice, for perfection, is satisfied. All we have to do is to acknowledge our sin and our helplessness and to put our whole trust and confidence in Jesus Christ to save us. We are justified by faith alone and nothing else. An absolute statement of absolute truth. Now, to a modern mind, such a statement might be reasonably easy to accept. That's it, the truth, and we believe it. However, to minds influenced by postmodern thought, where there are many equally valid truths, how much more difficult it is to accept the Christian message that we've just talked about. Well, in tonight's passage, Paul gives us some help that lets us think through why we can accept that absolute statement of absolute truth. You remember the background uh, to this New Testament letter. Christoph opened the, the background for us a couple of weeks ago when he introduced the book of Galatians. The Gentile Christians in the, the Roman province of uh, Galatia had been coming under pressure from Christians who were Jews by background that they must as well as having faith in Jesus Christ, be circumcised. They must obey the Mosaic law if they were to be true Christians and included as God's people. And we know from what we've already thought about that Paul would have none of this. For him, salvation is by faith alone. There's nothing to add to this. Well, who are the Galatian Christians to believe? Why should they believe Paul that they're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And indeed, the key question for us tonight, why should we? Well, Paul sets out in the passage that, that we've read together to prove his authority that he should be listened to and that the message he proclaims is God's message. Firstly, he demonstrates where he received his, me his message from, its source or its, its origin. Now, we probably all know the, the story well, how Paul, as he traveled the 170 miles from Jerusalem 
up to Damascus, he was spoken to directly by God Almighty. Let's look again at chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You see, Paul argues this, there's no human intervention necessary. Just as in the very first verse of the book of Galatians that Christoph opened to us last time, Paul asserts the message that he got came directly from God himself. There it is, a bold assertion. Believe me, believe what I say, because it comes directly from God. However, Paul seems to realize that, that this may not suffice some of his hearers who may want to know more reasons about why they should believe Paul when he says that the message he got, he got directly from God. And to answer that question, Paul tries to to answer his skeptics from his own life story. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. First of all, Paul describes his fanatical persecution of Christianity before he met Jesus. He didn't just persecute it, but look at verse 13. He wanted to destroy the Christian faith and all that Jesus proclaimed. Not only was Paul uh, fanatical about his attempts to destroy the Christian truth, he was fanatical in his support of Judaism and the Jewish traditions. Look at verse 14. He outstripped even his own Jewish contemporaries in his fanatical support for Judaism. Now, that was Paul's state of mind before his conversion. He wanted to destroy the Christian church, and he was fanatical in his support for Judaism. Now, a person in such a state of mind is in no mood to change his mind, or indeed to to, to have a man change it for him. Paul argues that only God Almighty could reach out and change him. And for Paul's part, he says, that's exactly what happened to him. However, Paul's argument isn't complete. Perhaps Paul's conversion was a, a work of God. But some might say, was he indoctrinated afterwards by others? So that his message was, after all, a message from man. Well, no, Paul tries to to deny that too in tonight's passage. Let's look at what happens to him after his conversion. In verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul makes the bold statement when he says that he did not consult with any man. And he uses the rest of chapter 1 to provide three three alibis to prove that he didn't spend time in Jerusalem where he might be influenced by the other apostles and those leaders in the Christian church. No, Paul argues, the message that I got, I got directly from God, and no one after my conversion influenced me. Alibi number one, you'll find that in verses 17 and 18. Paul speaks of the time that he went to Arabia, and he spent three years there. Alibi number two, verses 18 and 20, he talks about only the briefest of visits that he had to Jerusalem. Look at that verse. He appears to have spent little more than a fortnight and only saw two of the apostles, Peter and James. Paul suggesting that it's ludicrous that he obtained his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem during this visit. And alibi number three, verses 20 and 24, Paul talks about the time that he traveled north. He spent time in Syria and Cilicia. Look at the opening verse of, of chapter 2, which hints to us that... I, 
It was maybe up to 14 years after his conversion before Paul had any significant visit to Jerusalem and any opportunity to have any prolonged discussion with the apostles. Now, some of the writers speak about these hidden years after Paul's conversion in much the same way as Jesus spent substantial time on earth before he engaged on his public ministry and entered onto the world stage. So Paul's fanatical pre-conversion career, the divine initiative in his conversion, his almost total isolation from the Jewish church leaders, all combine, Paul says, to demonstrate that his message is not one from man, but one that comes directly from God. In chapter 2, Paul goes on to tell us about the time that he did then spend in Jerusalem. Why does he do that? He spent so long telling us about staying away from Jerusalem and the, the, the benefit that that has to his message. Why does he then go on to tell us about the time that he spent there? He's been keen to show us up to now that his gospel is independent from the other apostles and that it came from God alone. But now in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul wants to show us that his gospel is identical to the other apostles. People often try to drive a wedge between Paul and the other apostles and the message that they proclaimed. People say, well, Paul's gospel is a different one from others that we find proclaimed in the New Testament. Well, for Paul, he'll have none of that. He seeks in these opening verses of chapter 2 to demonstrate that there is but one Christian message. Notice again the story that Paul tells us of that visit to Jerusalem. Paul went there with his two companions, Barnabas and Titus. Now, while Barnabas was a Jew, Titus was a Greek, a Gentile. To introduce a Greek to the mother church in Jerusalem could have been seen as a a provocative step, but that wasn't Paul's intention. He brought Titus to the church leaders in Jerusalem to establish the truth of the gospel that both Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same basis that we've talked about already, faith alone in Jesus Christ. Titus, if you like, was a, was a test case. Would the church leaders seek to have him circumcised and to obey the Mosaic law if they were going to include him as a true believer? We'll look again at verse 5 to see Paul's attitude. Paul will have none of that. This for Paul is a fundamental test of the gospel. And it's one that you'll see that Paul held fast to, that justification is by faith in Jesus alone. Well, what was the outcome of, of the meeting between Paul and the apostles? Did they change, modify, edit, trim his gospel? No, says Paul. Look at verse 6. They added nothing to me. In other words, the other apostles couldn't find Paul's gospel defective in any way. They didn't make an attempt to add to it or embellish it. They didn't say to Paul, look, your gospel's okay as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. You must add to it. In fact, they changed nothing to the simplicity of Paul's gospel. I think the key principle that emerges from the the exchange with Paul and the apostles at that time in Jerusalem is the truth that the message of the New Testament is there is one Christian message It's a mistake to try to present the apostles as presenting different gospels. They don't contradict each other. Now, there may be differences of style or or emphasis within them, but they all complement each other. There is but one gospel in the New Testament, 
and one gospel today of the true Christian church. It has not changed. Its presentation may, but its content, as we thought about this morning, will always remain the same. So what are we to do with Paul's message that we're justified by faith in God alone, that there's nothing more to be added? Can we accept this absolute statement? And can we proclaim such a statement of absolute truth to a postmodern world that finds such an absolute position hard to accept? Well, Paul argues that yes, we can, that this is a message from God Almighty himself, and it is one upon which the Christian church down through the centuries has agreed on. But not all, as we know, even inside the Christian church, are prepared to accept the wonderful simplicity of the Christian message that salvation is by faith alone. Now, the issues today may not be faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision or faith in Jesus Christ plus obey the Mosaic law. It might be faith in Jesus Christ plus you must attend a certain denomination. Faith in Jesus Christ plus you must dress a particular way. Faith in Jesus Christ plus you must behave in a particular way or read a particular type of Bible. Paul tells us in this chapter about an encounter he has with the Apostle Peter, something that might help us in our thinking as we think through these issues. The scene now changes in Galatians chapter 2 from Jerusalem, where he'd met the other apostles, to Antioch. Here Peter and Paul meet. Here I think we've got one of the most tense and dramatic moments recorded in the New Testament church. A head-to-head, an eyeball-to-eyeball between the two leading apostles. Now Peter, as we know, has been a wonderful man of God. We've known that from our recent studies that we've had here in the evenings in the book of Acts. He has been book of Acts. He's been wonderfully used by God. He's been given a special ministry to the Jews, and especially to the city of Antioch, because so many Jews live there. What do we know of, Christ, of Peter's Christian faith? Well, we know very clearly that he is a Christian. That he confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Living God. He believed that justification by faith. You'll see that in verse 15. Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul uses the plural we. He links his theology with Peter's theology. They accept that justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter saw the the implications of this gospel and he was willing to live in fellowship with Gentiles without insisting that they had to become Jews. He was willing to eat with them, to drink with them and to live with them. Initially that wasn't a problem for him but then something seems to have happened. Visitors seem to have arrived in Galatia and put pressure on Peter not to eat with the Gentiles. Quietly, they come to Peter and maybe say something like, Peter, you're a Jew, aren't you? Aren't you you proud to be a Jew, a, a true son of Abraham? Well, we want to accept you as one of our own. You don't want the poor Christians in Jerusalem to suffer after all, do you, Peter? But if you continue to do as you're doing in terms of your ministry and your fellowship with these Gentiles, your special mission to the Jews will be destroyed. They'll not listen to you. They'll be alienated from you. 
And Peter understandably doesn't want to be to be misunderstood. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be effective as a, a missionary, as an apostle to the Jews. And so what did he do? He gave in. But for Paul, Paul will have none of this. In verse 11, we see there that Paul opposes Peter face to face and tells him, Peter, you're acting in the wrong. Paul didn't hesitate out of deference for who Peter was. He recognized that Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but that didn't stop him from contradicting Peter and opposing him. Paul didn't shrink from standing firm for the gospel he believed in. And why did he do this? Paul acted out of a deep concern for the very principle that Peter lacked. He knew that the theological principle at stake was no trivial matter. Any deviation from the true gospel, Paul simply would not tolerate. Well, I wonder what we can learn from that, from this clash between Paul and Peter in Antioch. Was it just an undignified, unseemly clash of personalities without any lasting significance? I don't think so. I think there's much more to it than that. I think that the, the controversy between Paul and Peter has much to teach us today. Now, the battleground might be different for us today. As we've talked about already, it may not be a question of, of observance of the Jewish law, but in lots of ways, others, even within the Christian church, are trying to add to the simplicity of the gospel. Adam mentioned that this morning when he talked about the work that he carries out in universities, where often he comes under pressure to, to water down the message of the gospel, to change it, to make it more acceptable. But we must follow Paul's example. No matter what the reputation it is of those who are in the wrong, we must stand firm and clear on the New Testament teaching. But of course we must do so in love and in humility. Often that is where we have failed in the past. We have sought to oppose those who are wrong, but we have often sought to do so in ways that don't show love and don't show humility. The gospel is the good news that justification of sinful men is by God's grace alone. It tells us that our acceptance with God is by faith alone, with nothing else to add to it. And this is the truth of the gospel. Once we've grasped that, we're in a position to understand our duty towards that. We must walk straight in this difficult world according to the gospel. We must preserve it and we must apply it. We must oppose those who seek to deny the central truth of the gospel. May God help us see clearly the simplicity of his message and give each of us the courage to stand for this truth, both before the watching world and our brothers and sisters in Christ, if they seek to lead us into error. Amen. Let's stand and uh, raise our voices to, to God as we collectively celebrate this good news that we've talked about. Let's stand to sing number 487. 487. And can it be as we celebrate the wonder of God's grace to us.